If you would, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke. I want to begin by saying that everything that I say tonight is built on the foundation of the fact that we are with Christ. So Romans 6 is an appropriate text to read to lead into what I'm going to preach on because unless Romans 6 is true, what I'm saying will be true but won't have the same impact. If you understand what I'm saying, as we go through it, you'll, you'll notice. Because what I, what I suspect many of us joined together tonight thinking we would hear when we see the title with him and then his life and how that empowers our living, people like me, theological types, tend to hang out in the foundation. And the foundation is crucial and it must be established. And I think it is among our churches, that the only way our life can be empowered by Christ is that we have faith alone in Him alone. And that we are then joined by the power of the Holy Spirit, literally joined to Him. Okay? So tonight, that foundation, if you're new with us, is being a little bit assumed because we've taught that. But I want to focus on a a part of this life of Christ that we don't often talk about um, in in our gatherings. There is truly one life in the history of the world that can be said to have changed the course of human history. Only one life. This life is the life of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, which is a small city, the city of David, outside of the capital city of Jerusalem. It literally was the holding place of the lambs. Whenever they came for Passover, all of the lambs were driven into the sheepfolds of Bethlehem to await their slaughter in Jerusalem. And our Lord was born there in the place called Bethlehem. Although His birth was announced by angels and by a star, no less, so that the heavens even declared His coming, the first people to come and greet Him were lowly, low-class, field shepherds and dirty Gentile wise men. That was his greeting party from the earth. He could truly be said to have a humble beginning. The Bible is clear on the fact that he was hated by the most powerful people of his day. He was hated. King Herod tried to have him murdered. He lived in exile for the better part of over two years in Egypt, hiding from this murderous plot to take his life. He returned to an out-of-the-way outpost called Nazareth. That was a beautiful city set in a beautiful landside of the northern part of Galilee. But it was you've got to understand, when you hear Nathaniel say, what good can come out of Nazareth? They didn't have a high view of Nazareth. One prophet had come from there. He wasn't thought much of. And and no one expected the Messiah to to be raised in a small family in this outpost city. He grew up in relative anonymity. We don't have a lot from his childhood. Luke tells us one story. When he's 12 years old, he goes into the temple and he reasons with the leaders of his day. He puts them to shame, by the way. 
and then submits himself. He, at that one story, shows his power and his mastery over the Word of God and then humbly submits to his mother and goes his way. And the Bible says in verse 52 that he grew in stature and wisdom and in standing with God and with men. That's the summation of the first part of his life. There's just not a lot there. But, as strange as it may seem to the world, to us, his life is truly the only thing of real significance. What we do have in the Gospels, though we don't have the beginning of his life, is an amazing story of a life lived purposely through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father in keeping with all of the words of Scripture and then laid down as a sacrifice for His people and raised on the third day by the power of God. It's truly an amazing story. And I want to look at it with you tonight. And I want to tell you up front, I told Ryan on the phone, this, this will require you holding a Bible and you flipping a lot. We're not going to be in one text. You notice it says Luke on your program. I expanded because Luke wasn't a big enough 24 chapters is not enough. We're going through Acts also. So we're going to get all of the corpus of Luke in one night. We want to look at a variety of passages in Luke and Acts. And as we look at them, I want us to understand how the life of Christ empowers our everyday living. So I want to do that by asking three questions. First of all, what type of life did Jesus live? First of all, we could say he lived a holy life. A truly holy life. Look at Luke chapter 1 verse 35. And the angel answered her. Talking to Mary. The Holy Spirit. You notice that? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy. The Son of God. He lived, we talk about living a holy life, and indeed we should, but let me tell you something. Jesus was holy. His life was truly holy. He was set apart from the womb by the Holy Spirit, and He lived a holy life, separate from all others, different in every way. Luke 2, verses 25 through 32. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now, the Jews, uh, the righteous Jews, the, the true Jews of the heart were looking for their Messiah. And we find Simeon. He's one of these Jews, and he's in the temple. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. You notice that? Listen, I'm going to pause right here. Luke, if you're not comfortable with the Holy Spirit, Luke is not your man. Luke, from the outset of chapter 1 and continuing through Acts 28, never ceases to exalt Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen, because people are excessive in their false doctrines about the Holy Spirit does not mean the people of God need to become silent about the true nature of the Holy Spirit. He is powerful and He set Christ apart and now He's announcing Christ to the people gathered in Jerusalem. Notice he's announcing Christ to Simeon. 
He doesn't announce himself. He announces Christ. Look what he does. Simeon's there waiting, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His life is holy. It is set apart. It's set apart by the Holy Spirit. And we see it being set apart and announced by the Holy Spirit. Luke 2, verse 52. Anna, the devout... um, Excuse me, Luke 2, verse 38... Anna, the devout Jewish lady in the temple also, waiting, praying, seeking to see the Lord's Christ. In verse 38, it says, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to, who, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Led by the Holy Spirit, these two saw Christ holy and set apart, different. Luke 2, verse 52, as we continue looking here. We see the statement where Jesus' life is said to be holy in action. Notice it says, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor, in grace, with God and man. The way He increased was by living an obedient and holy life. He acted on His character. Who He was flowed from inside of Him to the outside through His actions. Every day, children, He never ever disobeyed his parents, not in the least. Adults, he never saw a command from God and said, oh, that's not important, we'll set that aside. He always obeyed. He truly was holy. Luke 4, verses 1 through 13, and we won't read all of this text for time's sake, but I turn your head and your eyes here to show you. And Jesus, verse 1, notice again, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He was led there, full of the Holy Spirit. And he resisted each temptation. First, the temptation to turn stones into bread. Because he quotes the Scripture in Deuteronomy, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's tempted then to bow down and worship Satan. And rather than do that, he resists by saying, you shall worship the Lord your God, and serve Him only. And then the last, to tempt God by throwing Himself off the high place, and His response again from Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He resisted sin at every turn. He was holy. Luke 22. Luke 22. Verse 23 Excuse me, Luke 22, verse 66, and continuing through 23. Now he's in the trial at the end of his life. He's lived a perfect and holy life, and now he comes to the end when he's dying or when he's on trial facing death. And notice what is said about him by Luke's account. Luke 22, verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. Now, I just want to say quickly, from all of the gospel accounts, we see this is a mock 
trial. This is a false trial. They didn't follow the prescribed law of their own people. They brought him in under the cover of darkness and began to accuse him and beat him and threaten him, which was completely out of bounds. They are unholy. And they're beating the Holy One. And here he stands. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if you ask, if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. There he is claiming to be God. He is holy. So they all said, are you the Son of God? And he said, you say that I am. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. They take him to Pilate, chapter 23. And I just want to point out to you what Pilate says about Jesus. Verse 4, this Gentile ruler says, the chief priests and the crowds, he, he says to them, I find no guilt in this man. It's significant when your opponents find no guilt in you. He was holy. He was holy. But it's not just in Luke. I will, because I break my own rules, I guess. Matthew 5, 17 makes it very clear in a very summary point out of his own mouth. I did not come to set the law of God aside, but I came to fulfill the law. And that he did. And aren't you glad? And and. Aren't we all glad together that he did what we could not do? He kept the law. He upheld the word of God. He was holy. Secondly, he was purposeful in his life. He wasn't just living by a whim. He wasn't just going about the countryside as some uh, crazed teacher or rabbi as some people like to paint him out to be. No, he's purposeful. Luke 3, verses 21 and 22. He goes to John, who's baptizing And in verse 21 it says, Now when all the people were baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized, that was very purposeful, and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So here we see the beginning of a purposeful ministry. He goes and is publicly set apart for ministry. Who is he set apart by? By God Himself, through the Holy Spirit. He's acting according to a will, according to God's will in all of this. Luke 4, verses 14 through 19. Right after we see the temptation of Christ in the desert, we come to His life ministry. Verse 14, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. I told you if you, didn't, if you were uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't like Luke. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in the synagogue, their synagogues being glorified by all. Very purposeful in his life. He goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he stands on an assigned day for worship. They hand him the scroll of Isaiah. That was not happenstance. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolled the scroll and he read the words where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. His life purpose was to declare the good news, the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the gospel of liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
the great jubilee year. And he comes and proclaims that in his hometown, purposely announcing his ministry as a gospel ministry, a good news ministry. Jesus is holy. Jesus is purposeful. Luke 22, verses 14 through 16. As we look here, we see that he comes to the last day before he's arrested, the night before he's arrested, the night we're observing tonight. And he's with his men in the upper room. And when the hour came, verse 14, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. That, that points to the purpose of his life. All my life I've lived waiting for this very moment. And now it's here. He lived a purpose-filled life. And we, again, go to John 17. Just to corroborate this, in his own prayer in John 17, Jesus says to the Father, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. His life was purposeful. It was planned. It was willful. And it was according to the will of God. He lived a holy life. He lived a purposeful life. But he lived a loving life. He also lived a very loving life. Now, in Luke 4, we begin the ministry of Jesus. And I just want to run through these with you. Literally, we're going to be able to turn the pages and see the love of our Lord for the people he lived around. Luke 4, verse 31 and 37. He finishes preaching at Nazareth. And then in verse 31, it says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down into the midst, he came out of him, having done with him, done him no harm. Because I, I read there that Jesus restrained him from doing harm. The demon wanted to do harm to the man, but Jesus loved the man and wouldn't let him harm the man. Jesus loved people. And the reports went out into every place in the surrounding region. And then in verse 38, he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simeon's, Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And, the, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And the sun was setting. All those who had any, any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. This is just the beginning. It continues throughout. Notice in chapter 5, verse 12, he cleanses a leper. Lepers were the most outcast in the society. They could not dwell with other Jew Jewish people. They were put outside the camp. Jesus healed them. Jesus made them whole. 
We see in verse 17 of chapter 5 that he heals a paralytic man. We see that in, um, as we continue in chapter 6 that he healed a man with a withered hand. Having a little one that is missing her hand. Oh, how this one speaks to me. Having a little one at home tonight with what we think is fifth disease, a, little, a fever and a rash and aching joints. Oh, how the love of Jesus ministers to me. To know that he cared for little ones and he cared for the sick and he cared for the infirm. And all of it displaying, we focus on the power and truly it's powerful, but may we never forget that our Lord loved these people. He cared for them, that he identified with them, that he showed his power over all types of sickness and all types of possession and all types of physical um, um, storms. He showed his love. As we continue down through the text in chapter 7, we find that he healed the centurion's servant. The centurion shows faith. He says, look, you, you have authority. All you have to do is say, go, and, and this thing will go. And Jesus says, I haven't found faith like this in all of Israel. And he then told the man to go, and he found that his servant was well. Jesus loved even the Gentiles that were around him, not just the Jews. Jesus raises a widow's son. How important is that to a widow in their day who had no other source of income, most likely, and her son would be her livelihood. And Jesus saw her pain and said, I will raise your son. I tell you, he truly loved people. And we can, we can just continue, can't we? It just continues in the, in the gospel as it lays out for us the case for Jesus' love. Luke 8, verse 22 one day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep and a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and they were calm. It shows his power, but let me just tell you, when you're sick on the sea, that's tossed by a storm. It shows love and compassion. Jesus could have kept the boat upright and going to the other side with the storm. But he stopped the storm. He was compassionate. He was loving. 8, 26 through 39, again, paints a picture of him healing those with demons. And then as we continue, we see in 840, chapter 8, verses 40 through 56, that he heals Jairus' daughter and then continues by healing many others. He continues to, to show... The, uh, Luke is just emphasizing the overflow of his ministry. That he's setting right the things that are wrong in all of Israel. Everywhere he goes, he's turning the world upside down. Luke 9, Luke 9, 10 through 17 we see here that he feeds the 5,000. Having compassion on them because it was getting late and they had no food and there was no food near to them, he multiplied to them food. We could go truly throughout this, but let me just move to show you the greatest act of love that has ever been shown in Luke 23. Luke 23 and without this act, all the other acts begin to diminish in their value. 
Because he not only healed the blind and the lame and restored the withered hand and drove out fevers and demons and calm storms, but the ultimate act of love, Jesus said himself, is that a man lays down his life for his friends. And then in Luke 23, verse 26, Jesus begins the process of laying down his life. They had beaten him. They had falsely tried and accused him. The people had cried for his death. And now they've, after beating him and after tormenting him with little sleep and with excessive pain, they laid a wooden beam across his back and they began to take him to the place of Golgotha, the skull, so that they might crucify him outside the city of Jerusalem. And they hung him in, midst, um, the midst, in the midst of criminals, like a common criminal. And then verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I lay down my life for the sheep, and if I lay it down, I can also take it up again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down. This is the ultimate act of love and purpose and holiness because it's fulfilling the Word of God. His life is not only holy and purposeful and loving, but He's a servant to all. He served His disciples. Throughout the ministry, does it ever strike you that you never see the gospel writers? I can't recall any. I read the gospels to kind of proof check myself and make sure this is true. You never see them serving Jesus. They, they don't do it. Jesus serves them. And he even makes a point of it, doesn't he? He doesn't rebuke it. He simply, when they try to stop him, you know, in the upper room, he wraps himself with the servant's cloth. And they say, don't do that. They knew how out of place this was. our master. He's kneeling down to wash our feet. This shouldn't be done. And he's told them, he told them before that, that he came to serve, not to be served. And he said, if I don't do this, then you can't be clean. He served. He lived a life of service, not only to his disciples, but to the masses, as we've already read. Everywhere he went, he took up someone else's trial and someone else's trouble. We don't read anywhere in the Gospels Jesus complaining. Never once does he say, you know, it's been a long day. I'm kind of done with all this. Send these people home. No, our Lord sits receiving sinners to himself night and day. And when they try to drive the little children out, for all of those under 12, because the Greek word is for children under 12, that were coming to him to sit on his lap and to be touched by this teacher and to be loved by this one who was most lovely, Children, Jesus never told them to go away. He always welcomed them into his arms. He served his people endlessly. He served his disciples. He served the masses. And he served all believers for all time. In his life and in his death. He served you. Some of you might be, guilt, uh, might be guilty of this attitude when something bad happens. What has Jesus ever done for me? Oh, let me tell you, there's nothing more He can do for you. He has served you unto death. The death of a cross. He's holy, He's purposeful, He's loving, He's serving, He's obedient. He's obedient. 
in, in Luke 2, verse 52, we see it where it says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. But then we also see it in his own prayer in John 17, 4, when he says, Father, I've done everything you sent me to do. That's the ultimate statement of obedience. I didn't leave one thing undone. Listen, when I was, when, when I was looking at my own day, even today, knowing I'm coming to preach in front of all these people, it's like you think you get it right, right? You live this perfect life. I've had to repent. It feels like more today than ever. Right? I can't fulfill the obedience one day in my own strength. I'm an utter failure. And Jesus looks back over an entire life and says, I've done everything you sent me to do. Perfect obedience. He's sacrificial. He sacrificed his dwelling with God in the Shekinah glory. In John 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There, the, the meaning says, they're face to face in the glory of God. And, and Paul tells us, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, that he didn't covet being equal with God, but rather stepped down. Not, not in losing his nature as God, but from the position, the high position of dwelling face to face with his father, he stepped down and put himself in the form of man and didn't just come as a man, but he came as a servant. And he didn't just come as a servant. He came and died the death of an ultimate treasonous sinner, even though he had never committed a sin. He sacrificed his position, his standing in heaven in all loveliness with God the Father from before all time so that He might come and be our, not just our Lord, but our Savior. He sacrificed comfort and ease. Again, you read it this week if you have time. Read through. You will never see Jesus say, well, let's do this because it's easier. No. You find Jesus always saying, hey, we're going right through Samaria. Well, Lord, there's, there's a way around that. We don't have to. No, I've got to go there. Again, you see the disciples saying, you know, Jesus has been a long day. I'll read into that. They're tired. They're ready to go home. They're frustrated. Send the children away. Send the people away. They're hungry. Just send them away. Jesus never takes the easy road. He welcomes the children and he feeds the thousands after a long day. Jesus sacrificed comfort and ease. And Jesus sacrificed his own life. And he did that. May I just remind you again quickly, he did that purposefully. It wasn't that he got, he didn't foolishly bump along in life and then all of a sudden find himself in the clutches of evil men and say, "Uh uh-oh, I didn't know this was coming. No, in Luke chapter 9, don't worry, Bob, I'm not preaching this text, but I'm going to set this one up for you. Luke 9, verse 21, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, the Son of Man... Verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is far before in advance his death. No, this is at the peak of his ministry. This is when he's the most popular. He's saying, I'm going to die at the hands of these men and I'm going to be raised. Not only in Luke 9 does he predict or forecast his death, but in Luke 18, he does it for a third time. Luke makes sure you know it's the third time that Jesus has said this. As if once wasn't enough, he did it twice and then this time also. Luke 
18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, there's other people who have predicted their death, but it's generally really general. I'm going to die soon, like open-ended soon, right? There have been many prophets who have said, I'm going to face persecution, very vague. Notice how specific Jesus is. Jesus knows he's going to die because he has planned that death and he has handed himself over to it when it is the appropriate time because he sacrificed his life. No one took it from him. He gave it as a sacrifice. What type of life did Jesus live? A holy, purposeful, loving, serving, obedient, sacrificial life. And we could go on. But the second question is also important. What was the source of Jesus' power in this life and ministry? What was the source of his power? The source of his power, as we've seen in so many of these texts, is first of all, the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to look together at Luke 3, verse 21 again. We could start in, verse, in chapter 1 because it's there that he begins, Luke, to point out the doctrines of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit worked in even Jesus being born and John the Baptist being born. But in Luke 3, I don't want us to misunderstand what's going on here. Jesus is not becoming God. Okay? Some people wrongly understand this text to mean that Jesus was a normal person and he was just like me and you and he lived a good life and a sinless life. And because of that, at this point at his baptism, God said, I approve of this man. I'm going to give him my spirit. And then he sent down the spirit into this human, mere human. That's not the case. So what is going on here? This is an intentional act a purposeful act by God to show us that the power for living is available in God through the Holy Spirit. He didn't didn't need to be anointed outwardly for everyone to see. Everyone else needed to see it. Jesus is God. He did not become more God in the water when John baptized him. Okay? But what's going on is God's intentionally, like a neon sign, announcing the power for righteous, holy, loving, purposeful, sacrificial, serving, living, is the Holy Spirit. And so everything He does from that point forward, I mean, once now I've said this, and you go read the book of Luke and you read Acts, and it will just jump off the page. Every time someone stands up to do something, in the name of Christ, it's, it, it's the Holy Spirit is mentioned. The Holy Spirit came on them in power. The Holy Spirit went before them. The Holy Spirit brought these people here. The Holy Spirit snatched Philip up and took him over to another place. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's driving home the point to us stodgy, stiff conservatives. You can't do it by willpower alone. You must have the Spirit. So, Jesus lives a life under the restraint and the power and the, and, the, and the direction of the Holy Spirit. 
And it begins at his baptism. Outwardly, it begins at his baptism, though it had been going on from his conception, as we see in the first, chap- uh, in the first chapter. Then notice, after this 321 text, I just want to run through them with you quickly. Look, chapter 4, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit when he returned from the Jordan, and the Spirit took him into the wilderness. And then he came out of there after his temptations, and Jesus, verse 14, was in the power of the Spirit in Galilee. Uh-oh, we, we see a pattern developing, huh? And then it just keeps going. And then in verse 5, when he's healing the paralytic, it says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That power is the Holy Spirit. If we continue, we see as we keep going through the pages of Luke, one time and another, that Jesus continues to do things by the power of the Spirit. Luke 8, verse 46, he's in the crowd. He's going to Jairus' house. There's a crowd crushing in around him. Someone touches him and he says, Who touched me? For I felt power go out from me. This isn't some vague, super spiritual, hooey Star Wars force that's going out. This woman, by faith, crushed into the crowd, bleeding internally, weak, pressed in because why? She believed Jesus was her only hope. And when she got there, by faith she laid hold of him. Listen, if you need a picture of what it means to be saved by faith alone, God gives you these pictures. She's healed not because of some hooey power out there, the force be with you, but because she by faith grabbed hold of the only one who could heal her, Jesus. And when she did, the power of the Spirit flowed from him into her and healed her. You can't get that through a televangelist. You can't get that by saying some incantation in your closet. You get that from being connected to the only one who has the power to grant His Spirit in power. That's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We see it in His life. Verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, And He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, It would take a little more work, probably, but I just put this in here because I don't want to look like I'm skipping something. If you read Acts, it's clear that what he gives them, at least for this ministry, is the Spirit. Because it's in Acts where we see that everywhere they're healing someone or they're preaching and proclaiming with power the kingdom of God, the Spirit is the power. So I take it that he granted it to them as a foretaste of what they would have after his death, burial, and resurrection. Right here in chapter 9. He doesn't... Luke 10, I have to restrain. I I want to keep going, but we're going to run out of time. I want you to just be overwhelmed with the text after text after text. Phil said he was the most joyful man to ever live, and it's true. In Luke 10, verse 20, it says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Lord, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
or who the Father is, is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. He was in the Spirit and He was joyful in what was going on in His ministry. In chapter 11, teaching His men to pray, He comes to the end of the prayer and we often stop after the Lord's prayer or the disciples' prayer. But look at verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. The Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Some people say, well, it says He'll give you anything. They don't read all of the Gospels. They just read the one they like the most. What does He mean when He says He will give you anything? This text informs us, doesn't it? He will give the Holy Spirit to us. What we ask is for the Holy Spirit. And so we see for His very presence. And so we see this continued text after text building of the case that Jesus' life was empowered by the Holy Spirit and His life was empowered by the Word of God. Everywhere Jesus worked and ministered, He proclaimed to them the Word of God. Notice He characterized His ministry as a ministry of both powerful signs and the proclaiming of the gospel, which is in the Old Covenant. He proclaimed the promises from the fathers to them. Again, Jesus stood with authority and taught because it was the Word of God that He taught. Sometimes our lives are void of any power because we don't draw from the sources of power available, the Spirit and the Word. The Word and the Spirit. I would ask this question of you. When was the last time that you bowed before the Lord and pleaded for His Spirit and that He would reveal to you His Word? When was the last time that you weren't satisfied with just having knowledge, but you said, Oh God, if you leave me without the blessing of the power of your Spirit, all is for naught. Holy men for all time have done this. Spurgeon used to climb and ascend his pulpit and often praying the same prayer. If you leave me now, all is lost. All is for naught. Sometimes I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that me and you are guilty of thinking we have enough because we know a lot, because we've been to church a lot, and because we hang around Christian people a lot, but we are nothing without the power of the Spirit working over the Word and in the Word and through the Word. And Jesus' life shows us this. Now, the only way to prove that is to look in the Word and see how His disciples responded once He has died and been raised. I, I believe they are, the, they are the test of the theory that I'm putting out there. And I don't think it's new. It's not a theory. It's, it's a fact. I really believe that the power for your living res, resides in this. God is pleased. If I was summing the sermon up, I, I would say, God is pleased to work through the power of His Holy Spirit over and in His Word by the prayer of His saints in community. 
That's how God's pleased to work. God is pleased to work in and through the power of His Spirit, over and in His Word, through prayer, in the community of the saints. So we should see this then, if that's true, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus, Luke says chapter two, in chapter 1 verse 2, until He wrote the first book, the one we've been looking at, of all the things that took place until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Again, the emphasis of the work of the Spirit through the life of Jesus. Verse 4, they say, he, he, after talking to them, he, he says, Wait, verse 4, for the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? The Holy Spirit. Which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 6, they say, Lord, is it now that you will restore the kingdom of Israel? And he says to them in verse 8, after saying, you don't know the times and seasons of the Father is fixed in his own authority, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Chapter 1, verse 16. Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. There's the combination of the Spirit and the Word together about the life of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So often we're focused on what they did, not who they got. They got the Spirit. Jesus fulfilled His promise, the promise of the Father. He baptized them in the Spirit. In chapter 2, verse 14, Peter begins to preach, and he explains what's going on in front of them by looking at the gospel that was preached through Joel. And it says in verse 18, In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Then in verse, as we continue to walk through, we see that in verse 38, Jesus Christ Peter telling them how to be saved, believe, repent, and be baptized. One of you, uh, one of you in the name of Jesus, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. The promise of salvation in the gospel contains the promise of the Holy Spirit's coming to us. Jesus was empowered by the Spirit. And what it drew him to was the Word of God. He explained it. He understood it. He lived it. It was the power of his living, the Spirit in the Word. And he's often in prayer. And he's in community. And as we see Acts begin to unfold, it's the same pattern. So I'm asking, is it the pattern of our churches? It's not enough to say, oh yeah, that happened in the first century. We must say, is that where we're at? 
Am I, now, I'm not talking about a second blessing. I'm talking about bowing before the Lord God of heaven and saying, your spirit is enough. With your word, it's enough. Full communication and prayer changes things because you are enough. The power for living is him. And it comes to us through his spirit. And we can go through, and, and for time's sake, we won't do them all, but i got to do a few more. Acts 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders. And so he goes into his speech, full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 25 of chapter 4, Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, there again is the Word and the Spirit together. In verse 31 of chapter 4, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. The boldness of ministry comes from the Spirit through the Word. Chapter 5, verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? They lied to the apostles, but they were lying to the Spirit. It's the Spirit who's behind everything that they're doing. Chapter 4, verse 9, Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? In verse 32, And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. How is the Holy Spirit a witness to these things? Because they're witnessing, and the Spirit is with them. And so we see in chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And chapter, chapter 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power. There's that word, power. Where did he get it? From the Spirit. He had to be full of the Holy Spirit, and then power was there, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the Spirit with which he was speaking. It was the Holy Spirit preaching and, and, and proclaiming Christ. And it just continues, verse 55 of chapter 7, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then we see in chapter 8, verse 14, Again, that the Holy Spirit is there with them in Samaria as Peter and John go forth. In, in verse 15, the Spirit is there with them. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives, gives them power. And even a lost man notices this. Verse 19, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Even the lost man recognizes it's the Spirit that's powerful. How is it that we've missed this possibly in our own lives or misappropriated it? Verse 29 of chapter 8, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. And Philip did. In verse 39, He came up out of the water and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. It's the Spirit that's driving their ministry and empowering their ministry. Chapter 9, verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And here the Spirit is coming to Paul in a powerful way. And now Paul in, in, in um, Jerusalem, in chapter uh, 9, verse 31, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church multiplied as they walked in the fear of the Lord and were comforted by the Holy Spirit. In chapter 10, verse 19, And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit came upon him. 
The Spirit guides him to go to Cornelius, and Cornelius is filled with the Spirit, and so are those who believe in his household. And then Peter goes back and tells the people in Jerusalem in Acts 10, verses 44 through 48, and the report is in verse 47, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? When he reports to them in, in chapter 11, verse 12, he says, And the Spirit told me to go to them making no distinction. In verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as as one on us at the beginning. And then in chapter uh, 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Again, I see this as the Spirit. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. In verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord in verse 28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. In chapter 13, the church at Antioch is gathered and praying and fasting. In chapter 13, verse 2, they say, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. When the church worked, it was seen as the work of the Holy Spirit sending them out. In chapter 13, verse 9, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You see this. Luke is not mistakenly saying, throwing these things in as added words. He's driving a point home. Hopefully you see it clearly. That is the Spirit of God that empowered Jesus. It's the Spirit of God that empowered the apostles. It's the Spirit of God that empowered the first church and empowers our churches. Or either they are powerless. No schemes of man can bring into the house of God the fruit which God is bearing. Only the Spirit can do this work. And how does He do it? God is pleased to work through and in the Spirit, over and in the Word, by the power of prayer in community. That's how He's pleased to work. You say, why? He could just do anything He wants. He could do anything He wants, but He's chosen to do it this way. And so Deuteronomy 29, 29 would be a fitting way to close, right? The things which have been revealed to you are for you and for your sons, and the hidden things belong to the Lord your God. Don't spend a lot of time at home worrying about why God did it this way. This is the way He has done it. This is the way He is glorified. This is the way He shall gain His name's renown throughout the earth as the water covers the seas. It's through the power of His Spirit, working in His Word, through prayer, among His people. And I tell you, the same God that was pleased to work in the first century is pleased to work in the 21st century. The same God that worked among the churches of Jerusalem and Antioch is pleased to work in these churches, Grace Fellowship, Anniston Bible Church, Redeemer. He's pleased to work among His people. But let me tell you, He will not work He will not work until we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. He is not not pleased to work among people who disregard His power, deny the work of His Spirit, set aside His Holy Word, 
and try to work up emotional work in the flesh. It's dead. Those words fall to the ground. They're meaningless. I'm dependent on the power of the Spirit if I will do anything of any count. I'm dependent on the power of the Word of God if I will minister in any way a blessing unto the people of God. And I have the same power that was available to Jesus Christ and the first church. I have that same power available to me. So church, let us go through the rest of this week and into the months to come believing that God is working through His Spirit, in His Word, by prayer, in community. And when things begin to happen, because they will, they will. When things begin to happen, people begin to get saved. And you're at Walmart or Target or your place of choice of business. And they say, what's going on in Aniston Bible Church? We're hearing about people being saved. Please do not say, well, we finally got it right. <laughs> Please, Grace Fellowship, don't puff the chest out and say, well, you know, we're very smart over Grace Fellowship. We've reasoned out how it is that God will save people. Please, Redeemer, do not take credit for loving the people in the friendship community. When they ask you why your faith is what it is, give them the testimony that is standing true from the Word of God. We are under the power of the Most High God. His Spirit is with us, and He is pleased to work through His Word, and we have honored Him in His Word, and we're praying and pleading for Him to gather in the harvest. And he's pleased to work through us. Let's pray. Father, as we end this time in your word, and we simply want to say, I want to say, I'm overwhelmed. I'm convicted. I'm convinced that you are powerful to save sinners. And that power is through your spirit, in your word, by prayer, in community. Oh God, may we never stray from this truth. May we set aside any thought of our power and our strength and our ingenuity. And may we just be dependent 100% on you. May we work and will to see your work and will done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, go with us as we continue to worship. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.